Our scripture reading this evening is Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to be with you. Uh, I want you, uh, I want to ask you to... um, just admit something with me right now. And that's that you and I are really chronologically naive in our life. That is, uh, we are always struggling to admit that this is not the most trial season of my life. You know how life works where you start in a season uh, maybe it was like junior high and you thought this is the most difficult season of life. Like if, if I don't get talked to in the hallway, I'm a nobody in this school, I'll never make it. And then you move on to high school and you just sort of laugh at those cute little junior high kids because the real dilemma is the weekend. And if you get invited to one of those parties, but then you move towards the end of high school and you think I got to get into a significant college like, this is the most trying thing in life. If I've got to get into this school. And then when you get in college, you just think, man, I wish I could go back to just applying to college because I don't know how I'm going to go to class once every other day and wake up and take an exam once a semester. This is just impossible. You know, and then you get a job. And, and then you have to go to work every day and pay bills. And all you do is dream about wishing you could go back to college and sleep in. And then after a little while, some of you get married. And you have to connect with somebody and talk intimately and be in a relationship. And you're like, man, if I could just go back to sleeping late and watching Netflix and being single, life would be okay. And then you have a baby. 
and then you have to wake up in the middle of the night and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is the hardest thing life has ever offered me. And then that child begins to grow up and say no, and I hate you, and I don't want to be around you, and want nothing to do with you anymore. And all you do is fantasize about when they were babies, and just, you know, pooping on you, and throwing up on you, and you're like, that was actually really easy. Don't you get it? That this is going to go on, and on, and on, and on. And in every phase, you're sort of asking, is it going to be okay? Look, in all of those phases, and I know you did this with me, that you thought this is the most intense trial of my life that actually ended up not being that. What did you need to tell yourself in that moment, in that phase, that would make it okay? Look, the book of Revelation is from this Apostle John who's stuck on the, the island of Patmos in exile prison for the rest of his life unjustly for no particular reason other than he chose to follow Jesus. And what he's given is a series of visions that speak to him and will actually get him out of exile while he's still in exile. That is, he saw some things that came to him in the moment and told him it's going to be okay. And what John saw gives us this great question that I want to ask you to ask with me. And that's in life, do you really need perfect circumstances in order to have rest and joy and contentment in life? Or do you need wisdom in order to engage any circumstance in life? Let's answer that question uh, together. Revelation is for visual learners, so let's learn it through four images in this text that are really loud. There's the throne, there's the rainbow, there's the creatures, and then there is the door. These are the four loud images in this text. First, there is the throne. What you sort of have in Revelation 4 and 5 are two chapters that's like a courtroom scene. Most scholars call this like an Old Testament covenant lawsuit. And in the middle of the courtroom scene is this throne, a sort of like a judge's seat. Everything revolves around this throne. This is actually the central image to the entire book of Revelation. Forty times in the entire book it's mentioned, eleven times in this short chapter that we just read, is the throne. And everything is moving around this throne, suggesting that this throne is at the center of every created thing in the world. Now, pause. Whatever you believe right now, you sort of believe the world works this way, that something is at the center of the world and everything's revolving around it, whether it's nothing that leads to meaninglessness, whether it is uh, you, which leads to selfishness, or it's a worthy being, worthy of all of our worship that leads to meaningful, meaningful life. But we're told here in verse 2, it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, one seated on the throne. And who he's talking about is he's saying, the living God, the God of the Bible, was seated on this throne. He's not about to sit. He's not hoping to sit. It says, Aristens, he is seated on this throne. 
which means it's his. It's he's occupying it. And here's what comes from the throne. Look in verse five. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Now, this is the image that almost every scholar says comes from Exodus 19 and 20. When the Israelites had been brought out of slavery from Egypt and brought up to Mount Sinai, and the the God of the Bible is going to give them the law, and it says God appears, and there's flashes of lightning, pearls of thunder. It's almost the exact same image, demonstrating that from this throne comes unmatched power and control. And you see that further in verse 6 when it says, before the throne... There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, in the ancient Near East, the sea was thought by every religion, by every worldview, to be the untamable thing. There were gods of the sea that you would speak speak to and sacrifice to in order to appease it and be able to navigate it, but no god could control the sea. But before this throne is an image of the uncontrollable, untamable thing in the world almost kneeling down before this throne. And so here's all these images say, is that the God of Christianity is seated on this throne. He has complete power and control. And the untamable things of this world are kneeling down before him. And it's teaching us this, that the God of Christianity has utter control and sovereignty and power over everything in the world, even the uncontrollable things that seem out of control in our particular life. And man, we need to bring that into our life tonight. One of the most helpful things you can tell yourself every day is that you are not in control. And there is nothing you can do to attain it. I I have to say this. There are a ton of Christians who have been navigating life for a while, mistaking responsibility for control. There is nothing that you can do, there is nothing you can protect people from that will ever, ever, ever get control of your life, your children's lives, or anybody else's life around you. But we live in this facade where we're convinced that there's enough information, there's enough research, there's enough things I can do in life to make sure it's all going to go as planned. But look, the Bible not only forbids it, it says it's impossible and begs you in this moment to look at this image with John and turn from that. One of the most critically acclaimed TV shows that everybody agrees with was this show about a decade ago called uh, Breaking Bad, which I can't quite condone it because it's so dark. But in, but in the, the, the TV show, this character, Walter White, was a science teacher who became a drug empire uh, king. And uh, the fascinating thing is he builds this drug empire. He never uses drugs. But, you know, one commentator on the show I saw said, no, 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 he did. But he never tried meth, but his drug throughout the whole show was control. He said, everything that you have to do, you must never lose, lose control. One of his famous lines is, everyone has a death sentence, but until that moment, I live life on my terms. Never, ever, ever give up control. 
In fact, if you watch the show, all of his outbursts, all of the destruction that he lays out on his family are always when he's beginning to lose control. And you know, here's what the TV show helps us understand is that the pursuit of control is burdensome. The attainment of it makes you a sociopath. And do you know what God is trying to give you right here with this image of him on the throne? Is that he's trying to protect every one of you from becoming your own version of Walter White. And that's the first thing, if you want wisdom for life, that you've got to see. But secondly, over this throne, we see a rainbow. It says this in verse 3. And he sat there on the throne and had the appearance of Jasper, Carnelian, and around this throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, these stones uh, of an, an emerald and jasper and carnelian, these were stones that sat on the Old Testament ephod, that it was a breastplate that the priest would wear when he would go into the Holy of Holies and plead on behalf of God's people. And so what John sees is that over this throne of control and power and utter sovereignty is almost the image of a priest. The image of somebody who's pleading and guiding that control and power. And it's an image of, an, of a rainbow. Now this image, uh, every scholar will say, comes probably from Genesis chapter 9. When we have the story of Noah and the flood. And in that story, what happens is as the world rebels, God demonstrates his incredible power and control and sovereignty by unleashing this flood. But what happens at the end is God makes a promise to Noah to say, I will never ever use my sovereignty, my power and control this way again. And you can be sure of that through this image of a rainbow. And so when John looks up and sees this incredible image of power and control with a rainbow over it, here's what it's communicating to you right now. That if you're a Christian, the idea of God's power and control over everything in this world comes with a promise. That he will never, ever, ever use his ability to control everything in this world for anything but your good. Now, 2020 was horrible. 2021 feels a little bit better, but all of a sudden this week, not so much and not so fast. And in, no matter what you feel about it, it's like the last 18 months sort of hear that promise that God is in control and he's good with total cynicism. Like it almost feels like if somebody's driving this car, like is, is anybody behind the wheel? And if he is, is he good? The Apostle Paul speaks directly to that concern with one of the most famous texts. You, some of you have probably heard it. In Romans 8, when he says this, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, right away, that text has been totally abused by so many people in the church as a cheap, lousy platitude for somebody who just went through one of the hardest things they've ever tasted in life. And when Paul says that all things work together for good, that promise is only meant to be understood in light of something to come. Because the key word there is actually together. And what Paul means there is not 
bad things are actually good things, or good things one day will be a consolation for your bad things. What it means is all of the terrible things that you and I are going through in life are being used for a purpose with other things in the world right now that don't make sense to us. And one day, all of these will come together like an amazing tapestry that we will realize painted the most beautiful picture that any of us could have ever dreamed for. And we can't see the full painting now, almost like a French French impressionistic piece. But one day we will step back and see. And right now, we live in a moment like John, where the dots of providence cannot be connected and can't make sense. And so if you're going to have these promises, what you have to do is you have to hold on to them like a rainbow to say, even though I can't see the whole picture, I know that there is a promise outside of this immediate experience that tells me this is going somewhere and has a purpose. Because life promises you clouds. There was a little girl in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, that a pastor wrote about several years ago who was dying of cancer. And when she passed away and her father was cleaning out her hospital room, he found... He was putting all her items together and he found her journal. And in her journal were prayers. They were letters to friends. They were reminders of some of the best things that she'd experienced in life. There were days that were sad and dark that she reflected on. There were days that were hopeful and made her laugh. But in the middle of the journal was just an index card that just said the moon is round. And the father just was confused. Like, what does this mean? And he thought about it for a day, and then he realized that if you go outside and look up at night, sometimes you will see a half moon. Other times you'll see a crescent moon. Sometimes you go out and it's amazing, there's a full moon. But every once in a while you walk out and there's nothing. It's a full eclipse, and you can't see anything. And no matter what you can see, The moon is round. And what this little girl was doing is she was looking at the circumstances of her life. I'm 14. I've got cancer. I'm probably going to die very soon. And I've got a Bible that tells me God is good and God is in control and God loves me. These two things in no way make sense. And so what she did is she tried, she did, she looked through the clouds of her life to grab a hold of that promise to say, I will believe and I will hold on to the goodness of my God in the midst of everything that I'm going on, even though I can't see any of it right now. And you better believe you're going to get to a moment in life when you have a full eclipse and you've got to stare through it and grab a hold of the same promise. And what the rainbow is trying to give you right now is to say, when you can't see any of the circumstances in your life and the tea leaves don't add up to any of the promises of scripture, you have to grab hold of what he says to say that there is a rainbow over all of this control and all of this sovereignty and to say it is a gift and he is using all of this for something that one day will make sense.
And that's what John saw over the throne. But the third thing he sees is something around the throne. I mean, the first part of this passage describes for us the throne, but the second half describes what's happening around the throne. Verses 7 and 8, they tell us the first living creature like a lion, the seventh living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. You almost get this uh, reverse creation story here. It's indicating that everything in the creation is moving around and circling around this throne. And then it says, uh, 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 excuse me, um, in verse uh, in, in verse eight, it says the twenty four elders fell down. Now this is often uh, this is a reference to Isaiah twenty four uh, twenty one through twenty three. That's a moment that anticipates the judgment and justice of the world. That says that there will be one day when all of these unjust, messed up things finally get an answer. There will be a moment when everybody who's had something wrong and it's never been made right in this world finally gets it fixed and turned upside down for healing and for rest and for contentment. Now, none of us see this, but it says here that these 24 elders are looking at God's sovereignty and they're seeing the goodness being used of this and the together that Paul talks about, they see it now. And what John says is he saw them look at how God's plan will one day come together and how beautiful it will be and they only had one reaction. They saw how the world will end and they fell down and worshiped and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the only time this is used in the New Testament. It's Hebrew poetry. In the Hebrew language, poetry, it doesn't rhyme. It repeats for emphasis. So typically, it would just say holy, holy to make a point. But this is so unique and so profound, there's only one way to say it. It's holy, 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 emphasizing that this is like no other plan and thing in the world. And here's what this is teaching you in in just a moment. Is that if you want to get to the point where you can look at the hard things in your life, the things that don't make sense, the things that happen around you, and have peace and contentment and navigate them with wisdom, the way to begin to do that is through worship. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. That is the things in life that throw me this way and that way. Instead of cursing them, I've learned to kiss them. And if you want to learn to kiss them, you begin to do that through worship. Now, some of you are hearing that and feeling like, yay, does that just mean we just put on our AirPods and listen to Good Good Father and go for a run? No. It's not like, you know, in an office episode where Michael Scott's got financial problems and he just walks out to the middle of the office and just yells, I declare bankruptcy. And they're like, it's not like that, man. It's, it's way more nuanced. Look, worship, it, it, it's way more than just singing a song. 
One author put it this way, worship is nothing more than what happens to you when you find something that you value. And see, what the practice of worship does is it begins to take concepts that may be hard for you to believe and grab a hold of and transform them into something that you are. Because what what worship will do is it will make you into something that you love. Let Let me explain this negatively. If you love control, you will become anxious. If you love comfort, you will become passive. If you love attention, you will become envious. If you love material things, you will become lustful. This is how the human heart works. This is how life works. And what happens here for John is he realizes what these people are worshiping is shaping them into somebody I want to become, which is completely carefree, completely burden or without burden of this world and all of the things that trouble us on a daily moment. See, everything else you try to love in this world besides God guarantees you to become someone who will never be able to handle cloudy moments in life. Whatever you try to love, when it's threatened, you will drop all of those promises John wants you to hold on to. But what will move you into a moment that you can kiss the waves that throw you up against the rocks of ages are if you begin to set your eyes, your ears, and your heart on who God is tonight tomorrow and all of the moments in life and believe it and sing it and pray it and talk about it and meditate on it until your heart catches up with the things that your mouth is professing. And that's what you, that's what you need for life. Now, fourthly, lastly, what if that is really hard for you to do right now? The last image that you need is to see the door. And this might be the most beautiful image in this whole text. It says this in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, what John saw is that the place where all of this will make sense, the place that has all of the answers, that all you need for life, the door to that room is wide open. Listen, the access for the explanation of why things are the way that they are, for what you need for life in order to handle life, the access for you to have that is wide open right now for you to walk into. And you know how we know that? That it's wide open. Because this is so amazing. In chapter 3, one of the most profound texts that people know in Revelation is one that says, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens this door and lets me in, I will come and dwell with them. Most people have taken that text to say that it's a door to your heart. 
And Jesus is knocking in and saying, will you let me into your life? But here's what we learn in chapter 4. This door is not the door to your heart. It's the door to the throne room of God. And Jesus is not knocking on it from the outside, hoping you'll let him in. He's knocking from the inside with you on the outside, hoping you will come in. And friends, it just means this. Look, you do not have to muster up the courage to have enough faith to believe in a God who is in control and who is good right now. All you need is to see the grace of Jesus because it's his hands, not your hands, that open that door. And see him open that door and take one step in. And you know how you can know that it's worth going in because there's only one person who belonged in that throne room and who was worthy enough to be that. And he was in the center of God's plan. But on the cross, Jesus, the one worthy to be there, there was no rainbow. There was no explanation. It was only power, sovereignty, and control and not used for his good. It was used for his curse so that you can know every single time that God will never do anything difficult in your life for anything other than healing. Because on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead, do you know what that is? That is your rainbow. You know, nobody saw Jesus die on the cross and thought, God is so sovereign right now, and he is so wise, he is forgiving our sins. Everybody watched Jesus die and thought, this is meaningless. This is foolish. We have put our eggs in the wrong basket and put our hope in the wrong thing. But when Jesus walked out of that grave, you know what it did? Is it didn't just say, thank goodness that cross is over. Or, oh my goodness, this is a great consolation from Jesus dying. It gave meaning to that cross to the point that we now look back at that event and we don't just thank God for it. We sing and we celebrate it. And the rainbow over the throne means that that thing will happen to the worst thing that ever happened to you. Do you know that one day you're going to look back at the hardest things that you ever had happen to you the same way you look back at Jesus' cross now? And friends, you're giving a little access to that if you want to walk in it right now in this moment. And if you will look at what John saw, I promise you, it's going to be more than okay. And that's all you really need to know in life. Let me pray. Jesus, we navigate life trying to believe in you but really confused at what you're doing. And so we need these rainbows, we need these promises, we need these things to hold on to, to remember that nothing happens out of your control and nothing happens apart from your goodness. Lord, for anybody who's going through something really challenging and difficult right now, who's afraid who's burdened, would you, Lord, give them this vision from John that they need not fear? Would you help our hearts to worship you, to adore you, that we can begin to live, Lord, like you are sovereign and you are good? 
Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.